Hey everyone, before diving into this week's episode, just wanted to give uh, a brief little uh, farewell tribute to Sean Connery, who passed away over the weekend, uh, just a few days after we recorded this episode, so didn't quite get a moment um, during the recording to actually discuss Connery and his career, but uh, Connery is someone who's actually kind of been on my mind this year, because I've been going back and watching a lot of the James Bond movies in anticipation for No Time to Die whenever that inevitably comes out and so i've been thinking a lot about kind of what separated the different james bond actors and kind of what each of them brought to the role and you know i think while there's certainly aspects of those early bond movies from the 60s that connery was in that have not aged well and their their quality quite varies but i think something that i'm just always struck by kind of watching them is just his magnetism as a movie star and i think what he kind of brought to that role and sort of defined in that role that i you know i'm think for many people is kind of the the signature bond performance is just a kind of smoldering intensity that you know the idea that as soon as he walks into the room there is just this sort of like orbiting energy around him that kind of sucks all the attention right to, to, to the center like uh, almost like a black hole or something and being someone who was kind of equal parts um intense and intimidating but also erotic and just sort of like oozing with this masculine sexual energy but even though bond may be in many ways connery's most uh, iconic role he, he actually i think became a better actor as he got older i mean winning an oscar in the 80s for uh brian de palma's <laughs> delightfully pulpy gangster movie the untouchables and uh, certainly my favorite performance of his is probably hunt for red october great submarine thriller from the early 90s which <laughs> is maybe a very strange which is <laughs> A very strange movie for Connery to be in, considering he is a Scottish man playing a Russian submarine captain. But I think a testament to his kind of gravitas and just sort of movie star charisma and movie star screen power that he's able to kind of like hold command over that movie. And you're just sort of willing to kind of overlook the the kind of central absurdity in his casting and even something like you know the rock michael bay another like very over the top very silly action movie from the 90s but i think still showcased connery as someone even in his old age could carry a a movie and bring the same quick wit and charisma as he could in his young age um for those looking for uh, some maybe outside-the-box Connery picks, I would definitely push them towards um, The Man Who Would Be King, a uh, kind of very fun adventure movie that John Huston made with Connery and Michael Caine. And another would probably be Marnie, Alfred Hitchcock's uh, very hysterical um, thriller about repression and sexual dysfunction starring tippy hedron and uh connery and i think uses kind of the the suave erotic appeal of connery's james bond but 
for a like very delirious Alfred Hitchcock movie. So enjoy those, and now we'll go on to our actual episode. Hello, and welcome to Film Inquiries, the latest. This is a podcast series tackling the latest movie news, movie trends, and movie releases. I'm your host, Jesse Nussman. And on the other line is my wife, Josh Martin. (laughs) Hello, Jesse. How are you? Uh, Josh, we have a very uh, special episode today. Well, every episode actually is kind of special, so maybe maybe I need to stop using that. But today we are talking about the movie that's kind of on everyone's tongues. We're finally going to talk about Borat 2, or it is, as it is appropriately titled, Borat Subsequent Movie Film Delivery of prodig- Prodigious Bribe to American Regime to Make Benefit Once Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. Um... Josh, I don't know if you know this or not. There, there's an election coming. What? Uh, there is. Um, yes, I had no um, idea. And uh, I figured today we would, <laughs> as as this episode will be dropping election week, we're. We'll, I figured I'd get you to talk about two movies that I feel like are really trying to say something about where America is right now. Yeah. And one of which is obviously Borat. Um, the other that we'll kind of close the episode on is American Utopia, which premiered on HBO a couple weeks ago. Um, don't know that we can quite spoil American Utopia. I mean, it's basically a, a filmed concert, but, yeah. um, if you've not seen Borat, I, 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 I guess all I will say is like, you've had over a week to watch it. So we're, and, and also almost, if you're just, almost a week. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I guess by the time this drops, you will have had over a week to watch it and um you know if you've been just in the news world you clearly know what happens in this movie so uh you know we we will be talking about any and everything that kind of happens in this but let's first start with Borat subsequent movie film I I want to first just ask you what was your opinion on just the movie itself as well as like are are you a fan of the Sasha Baron Cohen experience yeah so first i'll say just to follow up on the spoiler point if you're a listener and you've managed to go this whole time without hearing about what happens with rudy giuliani in this movie consider me impressed because that was everywhere last week yeah exactly Um, (laughs) as for the film itself um i will say i am a a fan of the sasha baron cohen shtick um i think the original borat is hilarious um and uh, a, a incredibly funny film and um we'll talk i might maybe have to bring this up later as well but i am also rather fond of the uh show he did a few years ago on showtime i didn't watch all of it uh, this was strictly a youtube highlights version uh, but yes. who is america where he sort of tackled a number of famous politicians and the like uh borat too you know it's fine i mean and it's very funny i've rarely seen this but um almost every um review amongst or at least like ratings on letterboxd from people i know it's like either a three or three and a half that seems to just be the <laughs> i've consensus. been noticing that yeah <laughs> it's fine i mean it, it has you are best left watching 
a highlight reel of the funniest moments. And trust me, there are some hilarious moments in this movie, stuff that made me really laugh. Um, you know, and, and Baron Cohen's put some stuff out there since then. I mean, there's one scene that we'll have to talk about where he goes to a, a right to life rally, not like in the sense of abortion, but in the sense of the uh, moronic protests that came out at the start of the coronavirus lockdown when people, mm-hmm. uh, idiots, got all bent out of shape about uh, lockdown restrictions. And um, that scene is incredible. And he, he released some behind the scenes footage that seems like he, like he was in real danger. Uh, and, and some of it is remarkable and daring and very, very funny. Where I have a difference of opinion with the majority of critics is that I don't necessarily find the narrativization of Borat all that compelling. Um, the actress who plays a Tutar, I'm sure you'll summarize the plot in a minute, but it's Borat's quote-unquote as, daughter. As much as I can summarize yeah. the plot, which is maybe something we can get into, but but yeah, of I, I, I think it's safe to say whether you've seen the movie or not, there there is a a character um played by i'm I'm looking up the uh the actress's name because i I do think uh, she's very very talented in it yeah she's great it's maria bakalova i believe is is her name um yeah but uh, she she is playing borat's daughter in the film and that makes up the bulk of the film's narrative and um you know it works i get it like i think a lot of people have, have remarked upon um whether this film is sort of feminist in its own strange way, which I think is an interesting proposal, but you know, not one that I fully buy, but Mm -hmm. you know, uh, unfortunately for me, I guess I just don't fully watch Borat for the plot. And so the fact that this film does have more of a plot and that it's gags seem at times motivated by getting from one scene to another. um, I don't, I don't know if I've ever really cared about the character of Borat and his sort of like, his growth as a person it's it, it, the, the film takes a gamble in that regard and it's worked for a lot of people and, and more power to it in that regard but um i really am only interested in borat as a vessel in which american stupidity is um you know exploited and exposed and to what end the narrative here really does much work in that direction i can't say i i see much of a, a rationale for why it takes up such a bulk of the runtime and it's a longer film than the first one it's 96 minutes which still seems rather slight but um as some other critics i've seen have noticed it, it still feels a little long at times yeah i'd probably agree with just about everything you said um i guess some background context for anyone who for whatever reason doesn't understand what Bora what borat is and did not see the the first film that came out in 2006 it is uh a a character obviously created by british comedian sasha baron cohen i believe first appeared as sort of like a bit character on um the ali g show which was a a comedy kind of talk show interview series that he had in the uk that also aired on hbo here in the united states where um, I mean, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's whole thing is he kind of creates these sort of over-the-top cartoonish characters and then interacts with real people, often politicians and celebrities. Um, and the Ali G show, he was playing a <laughs> a British rapper who was doing a political talk show. And uh, in 2006, took the character of Borat a... Um, 
very racist, very sexist, uh, <laughs> anti-Semitic. <laughs> yeah, anti-Semitic, like I guess Kazakhstani. Would that be yeah. the, the correct terminology? Um, you know, I think it's uh, just Kazakh, but yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm not entirely sure on that. Yeah, uh, the character is basically a journalist from the the country of Kazakhstan, and uh, the the first movie, which was a giant sensation in 2006, basically revolved around Cohen as the character of Borat, kind of going on this road trip to make a documentary about America and uh simultaneously sort of exposing an uglier side to the the sort of american identity that sort of lies under the surface um a movie that you know turned sasha baron cone into a, a giant comedy star and was a huge cultural phenomenon that you kind of couldn't avoid even if you did not see the movie um you know cohen has tried to replicate this you know type of comedy multiple times i before i saw the new borat movie i i caught up with bruno which was his attempt to kind of do a borat style movie playing a sort of very very flamboyant um gay celebrity journalist from austria and do a movie that was kind of exposing and trolling and poking fun at america's homophobia and obviously the showtime series that you mentioned from a couple of years ago who is america which I, I think was about like 50% successful in that like its highs were really, really high, but there were kind yeah. of just as many bits that I think kind of crashed and burned. Um, you know, I, I would totally agree with you about this new movie, which um, I guess to piggyback off of you, I, I agree of, I found it very, very surreal how much more narrative this was than the first one. I mean, the first one has a plot, but it's sort of this like, very thin kind of bookend premise and it's basically just built on this kind of like this like road trip movie plot just to kind of get Sasha Baron Cohen to interact with a variety of different people and it's way more about him kind of being in the world and interacting than this movie which I think has well a narrative that is complicated enough for a christopher nolan movie and i really do not have time to explain it on this podcast basically involves him trying to give his daughter to vice president mike pence as a gift from the country of <laughs> kazakhstan and then goes off into a variety of different digressions um i i i will just say i i found the movie kind of as a whole a bit of a bit underwhelming i think just because i think baron or cohen's comedy really excels when it's sort of mixing this kind of fiction with reality and when he's just sort of taking these over the top personas and interacting with whether it is high ranking politicians or just sort of like weird people at some sort of bizarre convention in like the deep south like those are the moment the, the sort of quote unquote bits for lack of a better word, I think are where his comedy excels and there are individual bits and sequences in this movie that maybe we can get into that. Even if you don't find funny are just sort of some of the most jaw dropping crazy shit I've seen in a movie all year yeah. and are, are, are will leave you kind of like in amazement, even if they aren't, hysterically funny there's something sort of impressive and like oh my god i can't believe this is happening about them but i would say the sort of construction of the entire movie 
I found Borat as a premise less successful when it was built into more of this kind of like straightforward narrative that occasionally digressed into these big sort of elaborate pranks on political figures or, um, you know, sort of fringe political movements, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I will say, and this is a, a major spoiler for the, basically the whole thing, so if you haven't seen it, I know we already did a warning, but second warning, the narrative itself has a phenomenal payoff. It really does. Oh, at, yes. At the end with, so at the end it's revealed, um, there's all sorts of like weird little breadcrumbs that they lay for this throughout, but um, near the end you... Uh, he, you know, he traveled by boat to like 18 different ports to get to America. And at the end, we learned that his latest journey at the start of the film, he's in a labor camp because the first film was such an embarrassment to Kazakhstan. Um, and, uh, and so at the end, we learned that, uh, that Borat was responsible for spreading the coronavirus from you know, picking it up in, in China and going and infecting Tom Hanks and going around the world. And it's a, it's a hilarious, like just sort of montage and sequence of events that truly caught me off guard in a way that rivals some of Cohen's best sort of um, comedic pranks, except this prank is, is really on us in a more direct way. Um, So I thought that was hilarious. Um, Whether the rest of the film is, you know, warrants that one really successful gag i'm not entirely sure um but... let's talk about some of the individual kind of bits yeah. i think we maybe first have to start with the rudy giuliani sequence which is yeah. kind of the the climax of the movie and was like a big news story last week once all the reviews started breaking um basically to kind of summarize it the movie climaxes with borat's daughter has become her own sort of um self-employed kind of alt-right journalist and yeah, she's like an oan reporter for like one yeah. america news type of thing yeah yeah and lands an interview with rudy giuliani that l- ends with um that I, I say i would say pretty objectively like escalates with i i you know we'll we'll get to kind of how the scene ends up which i think has been a manner of some debate whether or not you know Giuliani is buttoning or tucking his shirt in or is pleasuring yeah. himself at the end of this sequence which is a, a debate that I sort of think is the least interesting part of this sequence but is objectively Absolutely. being very very flirty with um <laughs> with uh, <laughs> I'm trying to navigate the levels of meta-ness here but be- being very very flirty with uh, Borat's daughter and eventually Sasha Baron Cohen as Borat sort of bursts in as Giuliani is lying down on the bed and is like, she's 15. She's too old for you. Yes. And it it is this sort of, I will just say as, as my opinion on that scene, I think as a, as a prank, it's <laughs> my, my jaw was on the floor just the entire time. I mean, I knew it was coming, but like, as I kind of said, the question of like, is Giuliani masturbating in this scene, which, you know, if you want to dive into those waters, there's plenty of places on your social media you can do that. But like the weirdness of how that scene escalates, I, I almost thought it was just weirder, like the 
the gradual escalation of it of him like you know putting his arm around her and them like toasting with like glasses of bourbon and stuff and it's it's, it was just so bizarre because like this is kind of the lawyer for the president and i don't know i mean for me i think that sequence is maybe the movie's smartest bit in that a it is this like incredible gotcha moment for a very powerful person but also i think it it speaks to you know how kind of low the bar is for sort of right-wing activism journalism in that like they were able to easily land this interview with rudy giuliani which i think should tell you something about how kind of like ridiculous and kind of fringy and um just sort of like frivolous most of these like yeah quote-unquote right-wing sort of like you know you know what i mean like it's I think it's it's a funnier sequence in thinking about what does Rudy Giuliani think is going on and how easily was he duped into I don't really know what this publication is but it seems vaguely right wing and it could be really anything and how easily some of these figures in power are susceptible to kind of like objectable objectively questionable places of information if that makes any sense that's just what i was thinking about this entire movie of like okay like this this is clearly a a a news organization that they have made up for this movie but rudy giuliani thought it was real and i think this tells you something about what a a a certain political um a side of the political aisle views as kind of like reliable information that it'll just sort of easily believe anything that's sort of like playing into uh, their ideology if that makes sense yeah to put a really fine point on what you're saying these idiots are really gullible like really gullible and yeah i mean i agree with you and it's a debate that's sort of i think drifted in this direction once people saw the scene giuliani's claim is that it's deceptively edited it might be the film does take a very sort of jarring editing gap when um there's a point in the interview where they go oh, let's go have a drink in the bedroom and all of a sudden this ominous music kicks in and it, it goes into like this um whereas the scene to that point had been sort of taking place in real time this ends up being a more fragmented thing um was he probably tucking his shirt in yeah i think so I mean, I, I, but... I kind of agree it was it was that's why i was sort of like i don't like if you really want i the whole sequence is just sort of weird and yeah. surreal and creepy and probably like looks bad on Giuliani either way. But like, what is he doing in that sequence? I don't know. It kind of looked like he was tucking his shirt in to me, but like, yeah. I don't think that gets him off the hook. For, no, no, no. Absolutely. For, like, I think there's like a whole other list of just sort of like bad and questionable things that need to be brought up regarding like how this entire thing went down. Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, even if he is tucking his shirt in, that hand lingers down there a little bit longer than you would <laughs> one would want. And so, I mean, and let's be honest, and part of it is just like, you know, I think really the center of what has been described as the compromising position from Giuliani is, you know, if you've seen the image or you've seen the scene, he's like laying back on his bed and like, it, it it looks awkward it you know immediately before that he's got his hand around her waist i mean he can try to spin it any way he wants but and let's be honest sasha van cohen gives him an out he comes in during the initial interview um mm-hmm. 
as this sort of uh, idiot character, I think, I think he's masquerading as a boom mic guy. Um, and he's, uh, and he's, you know, at one point, I'm pretty sure he says to Giuliani, you should just stick to marrying your cousins, which go look that up if you're curious. <laughs> um, but he gives him an out. I mean, right then and there, Giuliani should have known something's up here something is something is wrong i should get out but these idiots can't help themselves you know the the first borat movie as well as being this like huge comedy hit and sensation across the country was also a movie that was like very rapturously embraced by the critical community and i think a lot of people saw the kind of genius in that movie in that Cohen creates this very over the top, as we mentioned, like anti-Semitic, racist, sexist yeah. character. And the genius in his comedy is sort of, I think, creating this weirdly comfortable environment to where people are more willing to sort of um, bring any of those kind of darker prejudices that they may have to the surface. And, you know, if you look back at the reviews of that first movie, I think a lot of it people saw it as kind of like the exposing of this kind of like dark underbelly of sort of Bush era America. Yeah. And exposing this darker side to a lot to sort of like how we would like to think of ourselves as being more kind of tolerant people. And I thought it was interesting, even in like, there was a New York magazine interview with Cohen where he mentioned, it's not just kind of like getting his comedy goal. Isn't not just like getting people who may have racist or sexist views to kind of feel weirdly comfortable around him. And then sort of like express those viewpoints back on camera, but also sort of exposing a tolerance in our society you know a, a moment like that in this new movie is like when he goes to a bakery and gets the woman who's the owner of the bakery to write jews will not replace us on yeah this birthday cake and of her just sort of treating it as if it was just like happy birthday and of like that is a moment of like it's just as much is this person going to just sort of like go along with the bit and not question these horrible things that, that i'm doing and saying towards them as much as it is, are they going to like reflect that back on me and expose that they totally buy in and believe all the same stuff? Um, so I, I, I guess that's kind of to get to a question of like, how do you feel about this movie as sort of a reflection on the country right now? And do you think it is successful on the terms of like, a political satire about the moment we're in. Cause I think we could go back and forth for probably more time than we have on this podcast, talking about all of the just crazy bits in this movie, whether it's Cone interrupting a, a rally that Mike Pence is hosting and telling yeah. him like, Hey, I got my daughter here. This is for you. Do you want it? Or, you know, to me, the craziest moment in the movie, which is, the days he spends with the QAnon supporters, which yes. is just like, that is yeah. the wildest thing I've seen in a movie all year and is so bizarre. Um, but I, I think for the sake of time, like what, how do you feel about this movie as I think it is kind of being presented in the days before an election as this is a snapshot of the country right now? 
Yeah, I mean, so I'll say this. I think the most thoughtful piece I have read on Borat to, uh, of the admittedly few I've read, and I haven't read like a ton of critical commentary, um, but Vince Mancini at Uproxx had a, a great review of the film that um, basically the, the central claim of his review is that, you know, or the, there's two central claims really. One is that, you can't properly satire or satirize a country that shows its ass every day. Mm-hmm. I agree. And then two is that, you know, there's a, there's a certain question of performance and performativity in this film of who's really like tricking who, at least that's the question that Mancini sort of pursues of like, you know, are the QAnon guys, like they have to be like in the know at some point. Right. Um, right. Anyways. And I thought those were two interesting questions in which to, um pursue the film i think it's too you know you talk about it as a a sort of film that is really self-consciously trying to be a movie of the moment and i think that's to its detriment i think you know i've seen people refer to it as something that'll be sort of a time capsule and that makes sense to me um but it doesn't strike me as something that really gets at the heart of what is going on in America in 2020 because I don't think anyone really has anything insightful to say about it anymore. I mean, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's more about, um, you know, it is sort of this fun as people have pointed out, as multiple people have pointed out, it's this film that was, that started production before the pandemic continues through it. So it does become this strange document of the pandemic. In addition to just the general political climate of the year. you know, there's certain things here that there's always a question of ethics in Cohen's comedy. And, you know, we, we mostly let him get away with it because he, generally speaking, is going after people that uh, liberals and leftists don't like. Um, there were a few points here that on a sort of ethical level, um, both sharpened by the uh, the film itself and also things I read afterwards, um, like the they like barely compensated there's a woman who um an elderly african-american woman who uh like it ends up she's like tutar his daughter's like babysitter for a while but gives her a lot of great life advice and she was basically duped into it as well and like they didn't really compensate her much um the scene that was like viscerally uncomfortable for me and in a way that um that transcends sort of like any kind of really humorous value. And I get his point. He's going, he shows up at a, a synagogue dressed as a, oh, um, yeah, yeah, as an exaggerate, like a really exaggerated um, stereotype of a Jewish man. Cohen himself is Jewish. That's kind of how I think a lot of the, the sort of anti-Semitic humor um, always has to be read in that light. But it's also that joke is, or that sort of set piece is, proceed or is preceded by a, a, a verbal joke that he makes of well you know i was very depressed so I, I went to a synagogue and waited for the next mass shooting and so you know to me that raises the question of you know the scene's clear purpose is to show this uh elderly jewish woman i'm uh i think it's judith evans i may have gotten that wrong judith dim evans yes it's uh it's yeah and so it's clearly meant to show um, her sort of ability to explain um, and sort of talk Borat out of his sort of stereotypical opinions. But 
I don't know. Do you need to put that worry in someone's head in 2020 when you're walking into a synagogue dressed in this sort of, it's a, you know, horrifying costume. Um, so there's certain things that rub me the wrong way there. Um, and I think if, if you really, if he was really going for this sort of documentary movie of the moment, Chronicle of 2020, there's something to be said for how the narrative sort of works against that. I know he's explained certain sort of feminist angles or wanting to explain things in certain ways. I'm not, I'm not fully sure if I buy it. I mean, it's funny a lot of the time. It's really funny. And it, he gets people to say and do incredibly stupid things. Um, I, I will always and forever love any scene where he is singing to a crowd and he gets them to parrot back um, something horrific and incredibly offensive there's a scene, I believe it's from the Borat, when he was on the Ali G show, where he goes to a bar in Texas and gets people to sing anti-Semitic lyrics. In this film, we mentioned the sort of rally he goes to at the end, and he gets people to do that. All that stuff is hilarious to me. Do I think it like says anything like definitive about the American condition circa 2020? Not really. I mean, I think it, it is what it is, and it's funny sometimes, and... Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I concur with most of the critical commentary in that I don't think it is necessarily all that revelatory or, um, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I think one of the things I've really struggled with in the last four years is what is, what is satire in these, or like, what do we want from satire? And I say that as someone who like, you know, throughout high school and college was like an avid daily show and like Colbert report viewer, like every night before I went to bed. Um, and yeah, I think, I don't know. It's, it's weird. I think this movie puts itself in sort of an odd position of like, I, I think there's something, there's a nugget of an interesting idea in that the first movie was about exposing sort of the, kind of stupidity and racism hiding underneath the the surface in American life. And we live in a time now where I, I will say just sort of objectively, I, I feel like the percept, the, you know, the large perception amongst a, a large swath of people towards the, those in office is that it's, it's, it's that group of people, you know what I mean? Like it's, the people in office are sort of embody or are more vocal about the things that would otherwise be hidden, if that makes any sense. Or just yeah. the idea that the first Borat, which was 06, like, I think, like, we had Facebook then, but, like, we really weren't living in the social media age then. And it's much more, you're much more likely to sort of see people's idiotic behavior yeah. take place on YouTube or on somebody films it and puts it up on Twitter or just all this stuff. And I think this movie kind of puts itself in an awkward position of, I got to the end of it and was like, I don't know that I quite learned anything or that, I, you know, my mind is sort of, I'm sort of looking at this moment we're in in a new perspective, if that makes any sense. It felt like a kind of a rehash of a lot of the the kind of commentary that 
you just see online, if that makes any sense. And like I said, I think there's a nugget of an interesting idea in that what if the people who 15 years ago would have been sort of hiding their sort of prejudiced views are now just like very vocal about it and or running our government yeah. and Borat just sort of like interacting with those people and thinking it's great. But I do think it gets to this awkward scenario where the movie feels like it's straining a little bit more than the first one did and doesn't feel quite as sort of like revelatory in the places it gets to it just sort of feels like a rehash of every joke we've seen on like a late night show or every sort of piece of anti-trump commentary you've ever seen on twitter um i don't know i i I got to the end of it and i was like i liked pieces of that and this will certainly like you said be an interesting time capsule movie but i don't know what kind of legs this is going to have because i don't know i don't know that this movie exactly has anything really insightful to say about the moment we're in but i think it's its legacy might be yeah this is like a very like weird like you said time capsule of this very specific moment in our country's history yeah well i mean and it's definitely it goes along with i think a general sentiment about you know with god willing the trump era or at least the administration ending soon you know let's hope um i've seen some increased reflections from people on twitter about like was there really like because at one point people were like oh yeah we're gonna get like so much great art out of this and it's gonna be like wonderful protest art and like all these great films and music and tv will come out of the trump era but does anyone really have anything in like interesting to say about this i mean i don't know i think everyone yeah. is i mean just so, i mean it's, yeah there's an interview actually two interviews there's one with andy sandberg and one with trey parker and matt stone who create south park where it, i thought it was so weird that they both said pretty identical things andy sandberg saying it was hard to satirize obama because had such a quote-unquote cool persona in the sort of media world that it made it very hard to sort of like find something to exaggerate into like a cartoonish caricature and that they sort of had to play him as a straight man in every snl sketch yeah and with trump that he feels like talking to people who are still on that show they've run into an opposite where it's like how do you make an exaggerated like how do you make an exaggerated cartoonish version of someone whose behavior is already like very over the top and very like ridiculous at times and finding it interesting that then in another interview hearing the south park guys talk about like yeah we've we tried to sort of avoid trump because we and granted i have not watched south park in several years so maybe they have figured out a way to do it but in in those sort of early years them saying like it's hard for us because we can't figure we can't figure out what's the like more extreme cartoonish version of this for us to reflect in the show without it just being like identical to like whatever you just heard on tv and i think this movie if if this movie has a big crutch it's i think it tries to make this very over-the-top funny comedy out of an already over-the-top surreal reality 
Yeah, I mean, and this kind of goes back to a, a broader theory of mine that I've been pursuing for a few years, which is that the internet has sort of ruined film comedy and that I can look up and see either, you know, someone filmed someone in a store doing something stupid, you know, someone made a meme of something. I mean, there's so much on the internet that is itself, you know, it's, you know, co comedians like Cohen and, and like what SNL does from week to week are trying to serve as these sort of definitive snapshots of a moment in time. Whereas we already have like a 24 seven running diary of everything that's ever made us laugh or, or been, you know, this part of what I think you correctly have called this sort of patently absurd reality. Uh, we have that every day with Twitter and I don't go on Facebook much, but I'm sure it's the hellscape it's positioned to be. And um, so, you know, SNL, especially this year, I haven't watched it much. Um, I'll watch this weekend because I like John Mulaney, but um, you know, Jim Carrey's Biden. Jim Carrey's Biden is awful. Baldwin's Trump. Don't even get funny. me started yeah. on that. That that makes me so mad, and that's not a like. We don't have time to get into it. I just think like the Jim Carrey Biden thing is just such a like weird like miscalculation that it just sort of like it it like irritates me every time I see a clip of it. I'm just like, I, who thought this was a good idea? Like th this is so like it. I I just don't understand it. No, I mean, to be to be fair on like my own general stance on Jim Carrey is that I like precisely one movie he's in, and that's The Truman Show. I, I don't even really like Eternal Sunshine all that much, so I haven't seen it since I was in high school. Um, but so I'm not a fan to start with, but he, he gets nothing right about Biden. Um, but anyways, yeah, I mean, everyone is constantly trying to sort of encapsulate the era and very few sort of have managed to do that with any kind of comedic bits you know i'd say maybe snl when they had matt damon with the kavanaugh hearings i've heard that sort of mentioned as a, a sort of pinnacle of of their recent output and i'd agree um so e but it's few and far between so even if baron cohen fails to do that here um you know the movie still has its value it, it's still funny i mean there's there's still a lot of good moments but the way i explained it to people was i said you know you're probably better off just watching a highlight reel i mean it, it it is not as a sustained sort of narrative experience i mean some of the scenes are really funny but some of them fail to really illuminate much per se mm -hmm. and not and not that all of it needs to but i mean i'm thinking of particularly like the debutante ball scene funny yeah i'll but i'll, I'll it give really? it i i howled when oh it's it's that, hilarious yeah <laughs> how that concludes was just like the fertility dance yeah it's yes. very funny i don't think it has a whole lot to say and so that makes it sort of an interesting place where um i think the movie is still very funny i enjoyed a lot of it and i laughed my ass off at quite a few points however i concur with the general sentiment that i don't think it is any kind of profound statement on american politics circa 2020 well i think if borat subsequent movie film is trying to sort of paint this moment we're in is a moment of high absurdity let's let's transition to talking about american utopia which premiered on hbo a couple weeks ago actually technically premiered as part of the uh toronto film festival's sort yeah. of digital lineup it is basically a filmed version of talking heads frontman 
David Byrne's Broadway show um, that was playing uh, early part of this year and like uh, I think kind of cut short due to uh, Broadway shutting down because of the coronavirus. Um, however, we do have this film performance uh, directed by Spike Lee. I, I have to say I, I love this movie. I was incredibly moved by it. Um, I, I think obviously like on a you know pure surface level it's kind of a a spiritual sequel to stop making sense in my opinion the the greatest concert movie ever made uh jonathan demi's excellent uh concert movie uh that's basically like a, a, a film talking heads concert but i think david byrne and that band kind of worked really closely with demi to turn it into something that not not only is this like really electric stage show but is also very very cinematic and how it is put together and the lighting that's used on the stage um it's sort of like a perfect blending of like live performance and film all together and it's a it, it it's quite like a, a tall order for spike lee to i think live up to with this movie and i think he kind of matches it for the most part in that this is a movie that is not just this kind of like incredible document of this very like electrifying and inspiring um stage show but also is very very cinematic and works i think wonderfully as a movie experience not just sort of like a a concert movie that you would see like on a to show off a tv at best buy if that makes any sense that's like the weird kind of like you know bad stereotype of like a concert movie i can think of um it's just sort of like playing on like a circuit city tv um but yeah i i i really enjoyed this what did um what did you think about it yeah so i enjoyed it a lot too and i'll i'll concur with you on stop making sense being a sort of phenomenal example of its form i can't claim to be like a concert movie expert but even if you compare i think i watched both stop making sense and martin scorsese's the last waltz last year and that that's another good one i will say like that's that's yeah. probably the other one that like i'm sure there's going to be some people that are going to at me on twitter being like what what about the last waltz which you know great movie but i i still like if you ask me i'd probably prefer stop making sense yeah well i'll spare you the uh your i'll spare your twitter mentions because i'll say i don't really like that movie at all um i found it like utterly exhausting when i watched it last year and and pretty boring uh in general i mean i, I don't know why but you know, there is a certain, it is a difficult task to pull off a, a great concert movie because, um, especially in an American utopia, um, you know, and I don't recall this and stop making sense. I saw it over a year ago. So my memory of it is, is good, but still a little fuzzy. Um, it, this is more conventional in some ways It like, uh, you know, there's more shots of the audience and they're all dancing and they're all it has this very sort of jovial communal atmosphere and that's baked into the nature of the show um which i think is you know it's hard to sort of create that same sensation in the viewer but this does it pretty well and stop making sense does it uh in a really phenomenal way i think this movie is perhaps most interesting as a fusion of burns previous two film projects one of which being stop making sense and the other being um have you ever seen True Stories? I haven't. Okay. It's a it's another phenomenal film. Uh directed by Byrne himself. Um 
it has this strange quality. It's him mostly in a small town in Texas, I believe. Um, so it sort of doubles as this, like, um, I believe most of it's fictionalized, but some of it has the feel of a documentary. John Goodman's in it playing a character. So, I mean, it's clearly in the realm of fiction, but, um, you know, it sort of doubles as both this um, celebration of small town America and, and small town life. And there are a few musical numbers. The song, uh, the Talking Head song, Wild Wild Life comes from that movie or at least appears in there. I'm not sure which came first, but it also is this sort of wonderful sort of anthropological or ethnographic study of, of American communities and, and American life. And I think Byrne is getting after some similar topics in this show and sort of, um, you know, I should have probably been more like keyed in beforehand as to sort of how overtly political it would get. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it still sort of took me by surprise and not in a bad way. Um, I think it's uh, clearly a film that's very relevant um, to the moment of, particularly from when it released a couple weekends ago to um, next Tuesday. I'm assuming this episode will release before the election. I'm not 100% positive, but... It, it, it will. Yeah. Okay. Mut, mut, um, mut, day before people, people, before your last day to vote, that's, <laughs> that's, that's going to yeah. win when this drops. Um, and so there's some really stirring, moving sequences here. Um, and, uh, and it's this sort of... Uh, one of which is uh, Byrne does a cover... Burn and his band. It's not the Talking Heads, but he creates created this sort of com uh, global community of artists who collaborate with him uh, for this show. And there's a, a scene in which they cover a Janelle Monae song uh, and uh, showing uh, the faces and, uh, and saying the names of victims of police brutality. And it is this really um, moving sequence. And it's one that... Um, it's interesting because you are acutely aware when you're watching it. Okay. This was shot, you know, uh, back in the spring. Um, and so you're wondering in the back of your mind, when will, um, you know, we had so much sort of, uh, so many protests over the summer against police brutality in the aftermath of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, Jacob Blake, and, and you see, and Ahmaud Arbery, and you see at least the names of, of three of those, um, victims of police brutality and and you see them appear in the uh in the film and you know that's a question you're as you're watching it you're going okay is that going to be acknowledged somehow um and spike lee creates this really powerful moving sequence um it's the only moment in the film that really um you know transcends the the diegesis of the concert itself most of it like you said it is this sort of concert film document but here uh you know Spike Lee intercuts images of the concert with images of um, of the victims, and it's a remarkable sequence and one that I think cuts to the heart of a lot of what Byrne is doing here, which is sort of um, reflecting on um, America's sins and faults and the sort of contentious world we're living in, while also, as the title reflects, pushing forward and, and projecting out a, a more sort of utopian vision of connection and community which is perhaps uh has a feeling of irony or uh, you know i don't know a, a slightly less satisfying feeling in the middle of a pandemic which has sort of fractured this country even more but um it's a really interesting film it's not one i like as much as burns sort of previous two notable film projects um 
but I still really enjoyed it. And I think it's uh, for any Talking Heads fans, any David Byrne fans, any Spike Lee fans, uh, it's worth a watch. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll just elaborate of, for me, the two things I found most moving about it. I, I, I mean, the, the first one is sort of this surface level thing that, you know, we live in, <laughs> you know, that ties in with being socially distant and living through this pandemic where we can't really go places. We can't see friends and family and we can't go to concerts. And I, I think there was, I think that first rush of emotion was just seeing the, this movie that I think so perfectly captures the electricity in that room and the, the sort of the energy uh not just like the performers on stage, but that the energy in that kind of entire auditorium. Um, and I don't know for someone who just like, I don't know, I, I miss going to concerts like, and, and it was just sort of exciting to see this show and kind of have that in my living room, sort of being deprived of that kind of communal experience. Um, and, you know, just, you know, like I, I love the talking heads. So like when once, in a lifetime comes on or this must be the place. Like yeah. there is just that pleasurable joy of like, Oh man, like it's like I'm at a talking heads concert or, you know, I'm at a David Burns concert. And then there is this whole political angle to the movie that I think is sort of an interesting counter to the Borat movie, which is why I kind of wanted to pair them together, which is I think in this time where I I don't feel like I'm being sort of I, I don't feel like i'm oversimplifying by saying like it feels like the mood of the country is like very anxious and very um terrified and very depressed um and that's not a pure ideological thing i just feel like that's that's just sort of the feeling in the air people are yeah. just like nervous and upset and i think for this movie to sort of have this wonderful concert footage but then in between you have burn sort of directly addressing the audience and kind of talking about things like climate change or voting or police brutality and it's not in this sort of like we're all fucked sort of <laughs> mentality yeah. but it's in this sort of like look we're facing some sort of heavy issues as a country but of offering up this kind of hopeful optimism of like times are tough but in this like weird david burns sincerity being like i i think we can get through it i have hope i i, I think i see yeah. great future for us and that like being really inspiring like i don't i i think it's interesting of like i've heard a lot of people like the janelle monet cover um which i i believe the song is called hell you timbalt and that yeah. being the moment where i think a lot of people like got really really emotional and for me it was the song that immediately followed one fine day where i was like fighting back the tears and was just sort of like i don't know i think in a year where it's the news and the the sort of tone in the country has felt so gloomy i think to get the sort of like little jolt of optimism just i don't know just sort of like emotionally like really really got to me and i think it's kind of like it's 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 a small little miracle and i think as much anxiety as I have about what's going to happen in the next days, weeks, months, years. Um, I don't know. This gave me a much needed sense of, of optimism about 
how there are these really daunting issues that we have to address, but maybe we can get through them together and eventually we'll, we'll reach something better. Um, and, and I think just seeing similar to, I think some of the observations tying it into like the Hamilton performance that dropped on, on Disney over the summer, which I think was kind of awkwardly timed with, um, a lot of the protests coming out, but you know, I think a similar thing that people kind of identified about that show and this sort of multicultural cast on stage, I think was something else that I found particularly moving about this and having, I'm, I'm about to sound really cheesy saying this, but there's like rainbow of people on stage and offering up this sort of message of optimism was something I found really beautiful and sort of a moment where it seems like the collective kind of, um, message we're getting from most of our entertainment as culture is like we're fucked like <laughs> like things are going to get worse and like the apocalypse is coming yeah um and so that, that that's basically all i have to say about the the movie other than just i i found it both a, a sort of sensory joy to experience um as well as something that you know i think gave, gave me the motivation to like keep going and maybe be hopeful about sort of what can maybe happen in in the near future um and not be totally doom and gloom <laughs> inside yeah. my apartment Th though to be fair david byrne does look at the audience at one point and go young people you're fucked so yes <laughs> that is true <laughs> is, that, is, that happens in the film <laughs> however i do agree that it does put forward a both it's a film that is both in its sort of style and structure and both in its placement in its release in the like in the condition of the world and and the pandemic um it is a very nostalgic film you know you talked about the talking head songs obviously um i'm not like a talking heads obsessive but i like the music and so obviously i get excited yeah. when uh, burning down the house or uh, once in a lifetime comes on but and you're also right in terms of nostalgia for communal experiences and sort of uh communal performance i mean you know it's a film that there's no hiding stuff when you got hd cameras and you can clearly see like some of the performers shirts are just like drenched in sweat and like i don't there's like a sort of tactile i agree the word you used sensory um you know feeling to the to the the images in the film I think it's a bit over edited at times and i think i could sort of quibble with small things but on the whole it's a really effective optimistic and um incredibly entertaining uh experience and uh i was glad to uh glad to see this collaboration from spike lee and, and david byrne get pulled off and uh yeah well on on that note of optimism i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna send us off josh and send us off into you know for the, for those of our listeners in in the united states you know maybe maybe fire up uh obviously go out and vote please please vote if you have not vote. voted already go I vote voted. go vote and uh yeah and if if you voted fire up um american utopia and you know just just try and stay positive and stay hopeful is is all i'm is i think the best way to kind of end this episode <laughs>